It's nice to be compared with Mark Zuckerberg, <laughs> I have to say. Welcome back to the second of our EBM roundups. Uh, this is where we are going to be talking about what's been going on in the last month or so uh, in the world of evidence. Our first one went out last month, and we've had some feedback, which is really great to hear. Uh, it's reassuring to know that some people actually want to, to listen to us. Um, Lars, who wrote in to say that he wants us to be clearer with our evidence, we're going to do our best to do that for you this week. As always, I'm joined by two of your favourite EBM nerds. First of all, I've got Helen McDonald. Hi, Helen. Hi, Duncan. <laughs> and Carl Hennigan. Hi, Carl. What am I saying? Hi, Carl. Hi, <laughs> it's been a long day. <laughs> I'm trying to be clearer. What more do you want? <laughs> <laughs> and there you'll have also heard the voice of Deborah Cohen. And if you watched Panorama uh, the other day, then you might recognise it. Deb, thanks for coming in. Um, tell us who you are. Thank you. I am uh, an investigative journalist and focus on health and I'm a BMJ associate editor but I'm working largely with the BBC at the moment. And Deb's here to talk about devices which we'll get onto in a little bit. But first we are going to try and give you our verdict on what to start or stop doing this month. Carl, you've got some research on drinking quite a lot of water <laughs> drinking a lot of water not alcohol so let's be clear water i think it's interesting for some time we all have had this bit of advice about drink more water and particularly there's been this hanging in the air urinary tract infection question oh you've got a uti it's a recurrent uti particularly in women and drink more water well is there any evidence for that well actually there's been a paper just published a randomized controlled trial in JAMA that looked at 140 premenopausal women and one of my colleagues selected this for the EBM verdict, something that you might be able to change practice today, tomorrow, is to give a bit of advice about drinking water. What they did is a randomised control trial taking women who'd had on average about three and a half UTIs in the previous year and oh. told them advise them to have one and a half litres of water. And what it showed is actually is about a 50% reduction in the number of UTIs in the next year. Um, and I think that's helpful advice, although there's some caveats, like all research, is the research was funded by a bottled water manufacturer. I'm <laughs> not going to name them. So you have to take some attributes. And it was also an open label, but you have to do that. And it's self-reported. So that gives me a sort of sense of mm, a little bit of uncertainty. So to really take this uh, uh, forward, I would like somebody out there to repeat this study in an independent way and see if we get the same result. Because it is helpful. And I do think it's helpful advice to tell women, but there's a degree of uncertainty around that effect. Mm. And we talked last week about how to deal with some of that uncertainty um, in an evidence. But, you know, you are a GP. You're going to be sitting there, perhaps talking to a woman um, with recurrent UTI. Based on this, what are you going to say? Well, to look, it's, it's pretty safe and pretty inexpensive to drink water. I don't think you have to go and buy the bottle water, by the way. You can actually drink it out the tap in in this country, uh, at least. So I think it's useful advice to say about a litre and a half can sort of prevent your urinary tract. A litre and a half a day? 
a litre and a half per day. Is that in addition to what they were having? Yeah, that's it. So the or increasing just... daily fluid intake to more than one and a half litres per day, to be specific. Okay, just to more than not that. Not in more than one and a half. So it's increase your fluid intake to more than 1.5 litres per day. Okay. So is that clear, Duncan? That, that is. That's very clear. So, um, Lars, I hope we... But just to be important, the bit about the manufacturer is there's lots of empirical evidence to show that manufacturer-funded studies overestimate effect sizes, and on average, it's about, about, about 40%. So I think there is an issue here. This type of research needs funding, because that is an important question to answer. It is. Lars, I hope we've done good by you there, and that's a nice, clear bit of advice. Now, Helen, um, how about something from you? Have you got anything to start or stop doing this week? Yes, and now the pressure is on for me to be clear. Um, I was editing a clinical update on the management of severe pregnancy sickness and high premises, and there was there was an interesting sort of possible stop, I would say, um, or certainly a question mark about some quite established practice in in both the diagnosis and the ongoing monitoring of high premises. So this is. Um, High premises is a syndrome that that can happen to some women who are pregnant, where the where the nausea um, plus or minus the vomiting becomes um, uh, very difficult to to manage and more severe. And the authors of this article um, had also done a systematic review of um, some some biomarkers, um, including ketones, in the identification of women with severe um, sickness, high premises, and then also in uh, the role of ketone testing um, for monitoring that group of women and essentially conclude that there is not much evidence of ketones being a very good test for the diagnosis or monitoring of that condition, which was quite interesting. And um, I spoke to some of my colleagues in the office who had been um, junior doctors in obstetrics who, who talked to me about how ketones were quite important in the management of this group of women and it might lead to them either being admitted or not admitted into hospital, having IV fluids or not having IV fluids and also can be involved in the kind of checklist at the end of that process to say, well, you're well enough to go home. Um, and the key author of, of, of this piece um, was a nurse by training um, who was also a patient with high premises and has been has been doing some some work with obstetricians and general practitioners around this issue. Um, and, and she has heard from women that it can feel very demoralising um, when you're feeling that way and something as tiny as ketones seems to be used to either validate your experience to say yes you're very ill or to totally dismiss it and say you know you're fine go home and sort of pull yourself together a little bit so it was very interesting to to read this and and to understand that that maybe something which is appears to be a key cornerstone of practice is perhaps not based on very sound evidence so i'm gonna make you be clear here Mm. helen I'm not that... sure if you was clear there, to be honest. No, I, don't I, mean, think... I think it's a very difficult topic. I felt as a GP quite clear about hyperemesis gravidarum, but now I'm did more you? confused than ever. Well, what, what did you do with ketones before? Well, did, you, did you use them? Uh, to be honest with you, I would have. I'm working the urgent care. It's one of them things you would do, you know, yeah. get a bit of urine and test it. And if it was negative, so hats off to the team here. I mean, what an amazing study. I, this is a systematic review, a tour de force, 81 studies included. I mean, this is a lot of hard work mm. to get here. 
So I think these reviews are really helpful. How does this disseminate and drift into practice might take some time. Mm. But this gives me, actually, the one clear thing I can do now is when I'm on the phone referring somebody in (laughs) and they say, what's the ketones? I'm going to say, well, there's a systematic review that says ketones are a waste of time, actually. Is that what we say? I think you could say that. Don't they say that in their conclusion? I think they pretty much say that. They do. They were very clear when you talked to them uh, about this. So why don't we let... um, the authors speak for themselves. We've got a little clip here from Rebecca Painter, who's an obstetrician in the Netherlands. While clinicians may use this, um, and it is in fact in the RCOG guidelines, the uh, evidence to support the use of ketones in the urine to diagnose hyperemesis is very limited. There's only a number of studies that have even looked at this. Um, and they don't find a clear association with the symptoms or duration of um, hospital stay. And I think that that makes perfect sense. I think hyperemesis is probably the only condition uh, with vomiting and nausea that may, uh, where, where we study ketones in the urine to determine whether someone may or may not be dehydrated and need IV fluids. We would not do that in any other condition like um, acute diarrhea or um, chemotherapy-induced nausea and vomiting. I think what we do with ketones often is to measure them and um, in an an attempt to establish whether someone is uh, sick with hyperemesis, which can have an effect of, of women being turned away from hospital care who don't have sufficient ketonuria to warrant this diagnosis. And um, I think once they're in hospital, we use ketones to establish whether they've improved sufficiently to be discharged home, uh, which can sometimes lead to women being in hospital uh, for um, probably for longer than they may want to be and need to be. I think that's the interesting one is when you use this and you do the ketones and it's negative and then you withhold treatment and you ignore the history, the symptoms and the signs that are in front of you. And that's exactly what they were saying. You know, and that's where that's really, this is real evidence-based practice, the integration of your clinical expertise, which seems more prominent because this is the best available evidence and it says this is not going to help you. Mm -hmm. So you rely on your clinical experience and expertise to make the diagnosis and your next steps and decide whether you treat somebody with fluids or not. Really interesting stuff. Good. So there we go. We've got something to start doing, which is drinking more than a litre and a half of water a day if you have a recurrent UTI, and something to stop doing, which is using ketones to manage women with high premises. So there has been, if you uh, keep an eye on these things at all, a lot in the news um, about device regulation, lots of different devices from breast implants to hips, as we were talking about, pacemakers, cardiac devices of all sorts. Now, Deb, you just reported on a panorama, which is kind of bringing all of this together. Well, I think it was interesting from the start because I think for me is... I kind of felt that I knew quite a lot about it already because we've been chipping away for how many years? About 10 years we've been chipping Mm -hmm. away. 
Well, look, there's a very structural problem in devices. In America, they're approved by FDA. I'm going to try to say this in less than 60 seconds. In Europe, they're approved by notified body, private organisations, about 58 of them. The problem with medical devices is you can use a particular feature called equivalence. My device is similar to yours, therefore can I have access to the market? The regulations define it as you need clinical investigations. That doesn't mean you need to have any sort of clinical trials, anything in humans. You can do it based on animals, laboratory studies, and take it to the market. And what's happened over the last 10 years is this continual number of devices across a broad range, uh, particularly the high-risk implantable devices, have come out on the market and have come out with no evidence, particularly in Europe. So a high-risk implantable device is basically something that goes in your body. Yeah, like so a, for like instance, like surgical a... mesh is yeah. a good example. When we looked at it for transvaginal mesh, 61 devices approved in Europe, not a single one had any clinical evidence at the time of approval. And on average, the trial... So, I mean, they haven't had a trial that shows either that they give you benefit or they haven't had studies that say, and also this isn't harmful, that's the bit of information that's missing. It's nothing, saying... nothing whatsoever. Okay. And the thing is, you can't even find out in Europe because they go to a private organisation. If you ask a freedom of information request and say, could I have the evidence, mm-hmm. you can't even find out what it's been done, done in the animal. So how or do you human. know what devices are actually even approved? You don't. Nobody so does. No, Nobody does. No so 2008 um, is when it was first on the table to change the uh, regulations, the legislation not for any specific reason, just that there hadn't been any revision since 1993 and at the European level things come up for for renewal. And at the time, the European Commission wanted to have an FDA-style regulator. European, like the European Medicines Agency, they wanted a division of the European Medicines Agency to deal with devices. Consultation exercise, huge lobby, and we analysed all those documents and we found that basically clinicians patients and academics all wanted pretty much a central agency like EMA that you could go to to find evidence. That's the European Medicines Agency, yeah. you mean by that? Don't yeah, you? European Medicines Agency that you could go to to find evidence and for high-risk devices, evidence of efficacy like they have in the States. But the majority of respondents were industry. I mean, everything from domestic appliances industry to contact lens industry to... UCOMED, um, which is the o- umbrella organisation for the um, medical devices industry across Europe. And so then, after there was outcry over the metal on metal hips and PIP implants in about 2012, the breast implants, okay. the MEPs at the European Parliament said, right, we really need to push this legislation forward. So the European Commission did a consultation exercise, stakeholders, basically industry, and they came down with a proposal that looked nothing like the European Medicines Agency. So you keep these organisations that Carl said, these private organisations called notified bodies. And it was handed over to someone called Dagmar Roth-Behrens, who's a German Social Democrat MP at the MEP. And... Her starting point was, okay, we can't have a European Medicines Agency type body, but to keep people happy, because people in a notified bodies were saying, we're going to lose our jobs. And she said, you know, part of the process of being a politician is, is negotiation and compromise. So what we're going to do is we will just have high-risk devices go through um, a central agency. Things like contact lenses and stuff like that will, you know, the notified bodies can still deal with, you know, plasters and, I don't know, 
and all the other stuff that isn't class three high risk and massive backlash again against that from from industry industry lobby and in her words she's never seen a lobby like it now this is somebody that has dealt with tobacco legislation has dealt with chemicals has dealt with cosmetics industry and she was overwhelmed by the by the lobby Uh, she's never seen anything like it before and so again it was watered down and watered down and what was interesting in our investigation we actually found that we got documents obtained documents that showed the MHRA's position so the UK regulator and in 2012 when this was on the table the MHRA had recruited someone called John Wilkinson now John Wilkinson immediately prior to joining the MHRA was the chief executive of UCOMED the main industry lobby group who actively tried to thwart any reforms whatsoever. So the documents that we got from the MHRA, they're basically a carbon copy of industry's demands. So, and what's really interesting is when you work with journalists that have come from a totally different sector, like finance, and you, like I was saying, they deal with Panama Papers, Paradise Papers, FIFA corruption, and they're shocked when they come into healthcare. That speaks volumes for me. I guess when you do something a long time, you start to get your head around it and you don't get shocked by it. But I think it's, as you speak to clinicians, we all assume that somehow the regulatory positions ensure that the device is beneficial and it's safe and there's evidence for that, so we're going to use it. It is a bit that you've got to realise is that's not the case. And we have a very lax approach to patient safety when it comes to implant devices. And there are sign- this is not just one or two, it's a, it keeps going. Because the, the problem is the companies have to get their device out on the market as quick as possible to get a return on their investment. And so they can't wait three or four years because they just say, we, can't, we haven't got any funds, we can't make the evidence, so we've got a problem, haven't we? And there's a structural problem that needs fixing that's hard to get your head around until you accept the basic principle. Most devices that come on the market have no evidence for their use in humans when they first appear. And that's particularly the case in Europe, which you showed, is that America is a little bit stricter because they say we have this PMA process which requires clinical trials. Therefore, go to Europe first. And you showed that with magic spine rods that they came to Europe, showed it was a heart device, which when I looked at it, this nanostim device, yeah. that you, it's a device where they said, oh, we're going to do uh, new pacemakers, but there's going to be no wires because the wire gets infected. Well, that's fair enough. It does get infected. Mm-hmm. But the idea tomorrow, you're going to develop a new pacemaker that's wireless and it goes right inside the chamber of the heart and, and it's lodged in there. Well, I'm like, my God, this is a really risky operation. And actually, it was like about 30 patients where it was tried on. Mm. And then it ended up being shown that actually dislodged bits of it dislodged mm, in the heart. And it's been withdrawn. And it never got into the market so, in the US. And, and this was concrete. What do example, clinicians think? Because there's probably groups of doctors that interface with this more than others, surgeons in particular, who are implanting this. What do they... What's Kind of common well, knowledge amongst well, I think about. well, I think if you'd have gone back three or four years ago, the common knowledge was well, you have no idea what we're on about. Surely they're approved. I think there's a sort of almost like it's becoming a, a, the awareness is higher now, isn't it? And yeah. I was, I was like slightly in like 
having to, I don't know, when the Royal College of Surgeons came out, the president said, we now need a post-marketing registry for all implantable devices. And you're like, hey, welcome to the party. Here we go. Thank you very much. And I think that's common sense, to be honest. But it's took a long time to get an evidence-based approach in surgery. And a lot of evidence has to be collected with mandatory registries for post-marketing surveillance. One of the most interesting things um, Professor Derek Alderson said, who's the president of the Royal College of Surgeons, was, well, what's the scale of the harm? We don't know. We don't know. We know about a few devices that are going wrong. It could be far worse. We do not know the scale of the problem. And that for patients is is scary. I mean, my inbox is full of patients that have been harmed or potentially harmed by, by devices. And you, you see on Twitter it's going off. And I think you kind of think, how many more scandals, in inverted commas, does it take? We've had the metal on metal hips. We've had the mesh. But I think what's happened is you've seen uh, particularly organisations like Sling the Mesh. I think they've now got 7,000 members on their Facebook campaign. Yeah. And I think what you're seeing is the internet has allowed people to connect with each other, share stories and go, hey, we're in the same problem. And it's that overwhelming force that actually they're mobilising their MPs to actually campaign for changes in the legislation, changes in conflict of interest policy, and there's a review going on at the moment, Cumberledge Review. But here's what I think about how I try and explain it to people. Imagine if this was the airline industry. If a plane drops out of the sky tomorrow, you expect them to inspect every plane and look at them all and come back and say, we've identified the problem, we're fixing it. Now, the airline industry knows it's really important they're safe. Otherwise, somebody like me, who you know actually sometimes gets a bit anxious on a plane, would not get on the plane if they were dropping out of the sky. You'd be like, oh my gosh. So it's in their interest to have safety. So one of the important things is, yes, the majority of flights go okay, but you can't have one or two dropping out of the sky. So... A lot of devices make a big difference to a lot of people, but you still have to have a rigorous approach to patient safety. So you can't have one or two dropping out of the sky, like metal hips, like surgical mesh, like all of the other ones you've described, and say, oh, it's okay. It's not okay. We need a system that's like the airline industry, and it's ultra safe, and when things go wrong, we have the proper investigation to fix it. Which leaves you in, as GPs, in a really awkward position. As you said, you know, people are are saying that patients are coming to them worried about this and and they don't know what devices they have in. Um, Carl, you've been covering this for a long time and thinking about this. What do you actually talk to patients about in the the consultation? Yeah, yeah, so I think the... There are two things that are really important. If somebody has a device and they have a problem and it's going wrong, I think you have to think it's the device until proven otherwise. Because if you dismiss a, a patient or some in, in a way and say, what you see is, I know you're in pain and you've got an implant inside you, actually it's all in your head. Actually, until proven otherwise, you have to consider the implant is at fault because we would do the same for an infection. So all the other complications, and I think that's been a key issue, is understanding the impact and the failure that when devices go wrong. So that's my first. The second thing I think we're going to see, and this feeds into maybe where we come next, is, is that we need a revolution in patient understanding about evidence and what's required to make a decision. Because I think what the failure also is, is you've got this position where people have been consenting people for interventions in a position where there's an evidence void. 
So how can you fully inform somebody about the full risks? So the short-term benefits always work out. The surgery seems to work out with new devices, but the medium to long-term, there's no evidence to inform that. So what happens is many patients are in the experiment. So I think we have a responsibility to start to think differently about how we educate and inform everybody. And this is particularly important when it comes to procedures. And I think we have to step aside so it's not just about the regulator. We now have a new responsibility to think about how we inform the public. Mm. You also have a legal, don't you? You mean you've got Montgomery. (laughs) Yeah, so that was a ruling um, in British court that said that Patients have to give fully informed consent and and set out some criteria for that, uh, which people can go and have a look at. That's going to have an implication about what what you do and don't say say to patients. Which, and it won't be for long. One of the what, a patient that's kind of been implanted with something post Montgomery that they're going to you know if you've got let's say a joint registry, the national joint registry with hips, and you don't get the the best hip that's available to you, that they say, well, you haven't fully informed me. Um, Deb, tell us. Uh, very quickly, uh, where people can watch your panorama. Well, it's on the BBC website, BBC iPlayer. There's full investigations in the BMJ and partner organisations in the Guardian and the ICIJ. And the BMJ have been covering this for, for years, um, and as has Carl. So, um, but the panorama's on iPlayer. Great. And um, we'll put some links uh, in the show notes, as always. So, Carl, as we said, you've just been in Parliament giving evidence to an all-party parliamentary group. Uh, Unlike Mark Zuckerberg, who refused to appear to talk about fake news, um, but I believe it's something on his platform that's that's got your goat this week. It's nice to be compared with Mark Zuckerberg, (laughs) I have to say. So this hasn't got your goat, has it, Carl? (laughs) Something else has got your goat. really irritated you this week? This this (laughs) one of many things. It didn't irritate me about the Parliament stuff because, like, look, I just think we are good enough, but it irritates me. When I see things, this was a news article, Facebook ad claiming that vaccines can kill is banned by a UK regulator. So, um, and this is an interesting, you can pay for adverts for what is basically fake evidence to go on on Facebook and be disseminated and appear in your inbox. And without going into the details of this, but it's just complete nonsense for people to be able to put adverts of very emotive topics and claim things like don't take vaccine for these reasons and here's an advert and if you're interested join our group and we'll campaign to make sure you you've you don't have your vaccines and i think it's we're in a really difficult world now that if we're saying healthcare is going to come down to paid adverts from all sorts of fake news outlets we've got a big issue and i think there's an important issue about we know that you couldn't get away with this advert on tv You certainly couldn't get away with this advert on radio or the news, but somehow you can pay for in the social media world to get this through right to people's inbox, and that's okay. Well, in my mind, it's not okay, and I'm pretty angry about that. Yeah, and it's not okay um, according to our... Advertising Standards Authority. So some regulation is actually working. Well, yeah, it is, but what the guy said here, and I'll have to get... He said the ASA, the Advertising Standards Authority, does not have jurisdiction over Facebook or me. And do you know what? He's based in America. 
So we probably don't have jurisdiction over it. And this is the global phenomenon of these adverts that can appear. And I think this is a global phenomenon that requires everybody to get together. But in, I can live with it in politics. Look, I can make my own mind up in politics. But it's not all right in healthcare. <laughs> um, Helen, what do you think about uh, adverts for anti-vaccine adverts on Facebook? Yeah, I was uh, also on Facebook and just saw posted on a forum uh, some information aimed to encourage vaccination um, being discussed by by doctors and was quite surprised by some of the messages there, the emotive tone and just the lack of evidence that was being used to inform people as opposed to um, emotion. And was this stuff that you know people were actually going to expose patients to in the same way as that uh, advert that Carl was talking about? Well, the way that it was presented was almost like you could sort of print this out and, and stick it up in your surgery or your clinic to encourage people to, to have a vaccination. And what was what were some of the messages there? So it says, what will you say when she calls you, i.e. your child, and tells you she has cervical cancer because you decided that she wouldn't need the HPV vaccine? So that's the vaccine against cervical cancer. Or it says, what do you tell your son when he breaks news to you that he cannot have kids thanks to the mumps that he got as a teenager? Um, and under its general information um, drop down, it, it says evidence-based medicine. But, but like, we can care what is evidence-based medicine and what you might do with your children. I'm happy to take this. I don't take uh, discussions on what I do with my children and whether they take something or not. But I am happy to take a discussion on how I might inform them. In fact, what I do with them is say, look, Actually, we're going to go and look at the evidence. And actually, that's exactly what you should do. And based on that, you should make an informed decision. As opposed to emotive, like, what do you do with your children? Because this is not, these are 13, 14-year-olds who are having the cervical vaccine. So when my girls had that, I said, let's go and you should go and look at the evidence. And it's up to them. And I think that's the important. And so we, again, sorry for doing this, it's a bit like a... Going back, is that's where it's important to do this in schools, isn't it? Into informing schools about how you look at research, and particularly with the Facebook stuff, is in fact I suspect we need a revolution in schools about fake news, but also how to assess evidence, so you can come to better decisions about what. Because this is not going to go away, is it? Mm. I mean, I suppose this is really. I mean, it's one thing if you've got a dad who's a professor of evidence-based medicine at Oxford to help you go <laughs> yeah, through yeah, this, yeah. and yeah. another if you're yeah. you're you don't have <laughs> Doesn't access. Doesn't everybody have a dad like that? <laughs> um, <laughs> no, thank God. <laughs> but Dev, you've uh, you spend a long time kind of crafting messages um, about evidence for for the public. Do you have a, a take on this? Yeah, I think there's a problem, isn't there? If you are in authority. And we are living in a far more probably sceptical age, rightly or wrongly so. You tell somebody vaccines work. Take the influenza vaccine. You tell somebody repeatedly vaccines work, get the influenza vaccine, and you get influenza. What does that say? Do what does that do to trust? You know, obviously there's problems with conspiracy theories, but I think sometimes the public health world, the medical world, probably needs to take a look at its own messaging and seeing whether it's fertilising the ground for conspiracy theories to actually happen. If you don't convey a little bit of uncertainty, if you convey absolute certainty, vaccines are safe, you hear that all the time, what does that mean? If somebody gets or think, believes they have an adverse reaction 
That's a very good point, actually. What you're saying is, which is that actually what evidence-based medicine is, is the more evidence you collect, the better the quality of that evidence, the more you can reduce uncertainty by presenting that evidence to individuals. And I think that's an incredibly important issue that you can't just stop doing an evidence-based approach no. and actually we need for public health interventions like this an approach to say we're going to collect more evidence so we can reduce your uncertainty so you can make a better informed decision well you need i think you need to tell but you need to treat people like grown-ups and and if they're infantilized and they are browbeaten then they will Become, some will become sceptical. And I guess it makes you more doubtful, doesn't it? Because if you've been told something unequivocally works and then you see some cases where it doesn't, it undermines that message. Whereas if you've been told it works for most people and you see that it doesn't work in some people, then the message was still sort of true. Well, would you do that? Would you tell somebody this drug is going to work when you give them a drug, would you tell this is going to cure? This is going to work. Would you tell them that as as clinicians? But my point about the Facebook is coming back to the original point, and your is is to say we know advertising makes a difference. We understood that with smoking, didn't didn't we? And if you look at the history of smoking, we've gone from like the forties, fifties with amazing quality adverts actually, to then it was in motor racing, and then we took it off the packages. Then we've gone to white packages, and then we've gone to these get rid of all advertising. And then oh, but by the way, you now could go back to Facebook, and you could go in all sorts of ways around the edges. And my point is for many public health interventions. Whichever way you look at the message, we've got a structural problem in social media that people can pay for adverts and bypass the usual systems, which is unacceptable in my mind and needs some sort of fix. And actually, it's Facebook that should fix this because they're the shop for these adverts and they take the income for it. So it's unacceptable for an organisation like that to sit there and go, oh, it's not our problem, it's over to you. Um, I suppose all of this is about the way in which people take information to either reinforce um, their position and and reject uh, information that doesn't. And we've seen this on on both sides, the the vaccine-vaccine advert and and the post that Helen is talking about here. So, again, back to you, Carl, you're saying that, you know, we need to arm children and, and people about how to think about evidence, how this informs or should inform their worldview at the beginning uh, when they're young to, to try and maybe bridge I guess, some I guess, of these I things. guess also it comes to what's our responsibilities as doctors and clinicians. Is Do we advocate responsibility for public health issues like this or should we be doing something about that? I actually don't know the answer to that. My thoughts are we should be doing. What we actually do do is difficult to determine but actually I think most of the younger people use Facebook, don't they? And there's a wide opportunity to advertise outside of the normal routes from outside of the country and put in messages, either for or against, so that's not the issue for me. The issue is there's a problem that you can go direct paid-for advertising about healthcare issues, which I think is 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 the Ad- Advertising Standards Authority has said is illegal, but actually we can't do anything about it. That's the problem. That's what makes me angry. So if 
you're angry like Carl, uh, and perhaps <laughs> <laughs> want to let us know about that, um, then go to bmj.com slash podcast and you can see how to get in touch. There you'll also find out how to subscribe. Um, so next time Carl is on ranting about something, you won't miss out. Well, let me know what makes you angry in the world and, and I'll talk about it next time. I might time. find the ranty thing next time. Yeah, all right. <laughs> I can't yeah. imagine Helen being angry about much. Then that's a, that is a challenge. I yeah. think we shall set that for you for you next <laughs> time. Uh, Helen, Carl, Deborah, thank you very much for coming in and uh, spending some time talking to us about EBM. You're welcome. Thank, thank you. you.